Okay, a little bit of housekeeping. If you listened to the previous podcast, number 64 with Thomas Edrington, this is going to sound very familiar. We had some technical difficulties. We got some new cameras, and we're still working out the kinks. So if you're watching the video, you're going to have about 90% camera feed. And then it dies with... I don't know, 10 minutes left of the podcast, and it just goes to audio. The video feed is, it's a little bright. It is a little bright, but don't worry, the issue was addressed. The podcast after this will be using the old cameras, and then from there on out, we'll be using the new ones, unless we have a third guest, because we only have two new cameras. So hopefully the video quality will be a little bit better for you guys. Fingers crossed we won't run into any more hiccups, but it's a podcast. What can you expect? Okay, our guest today is a cool guy. He's out there doing the Lord's work, growing some cannabis. And I'm sure some of you might recognize his brands. I'm going to let him take over. Please give it up for Craig Nijedli. So what's going on, man? Oh, man, just trying to grow and grow. Yeah? You know? <laughs> How long have you been growing cannabis? Since 1998. Oh, no shit. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, so you've been a... in the game quite a while. Yeah, about 24 years. Yeah. How did it all start? Just in your backyard? Uh, no, it started. A couple of seeds? The funny thing is I started growing in San Francisco with a buddy of mine in an apartment building. Oh, like, wow. Okay. like the fourth floor. In like uh, a closet or? A bedroom. So we slept in the living room and the plants were in the bedroom. Oh shit! <laughs> yeah. Humble beginnings. Humble beginnings for sure. What's what started that? Uh, well, my buddy was already growing and had been growing, and so you know he needed someone to help him pay the rent and uh, and help because he was a pro skater, so he's traveling still. So I was like his uh, assistant, and that's how I got started. Pro skater and growing weed yeah, in totally. his house. Yeah, nice. Yeah. So, had you had any experience with cannabis before that? Uh, not really, other than smoking it. Mm. You know. And um, I grew up in Georgia, so it was, like, super illegal. Yeah, you don't then. want to get caught with it down there. No, no. And so 1998, still illegal. Uh, Did they have medical? Prop 215 had passed in 96. Oh, okay. But it was still so new. Like, there were no, um, you know, dispensaries or anything just yet in 98. Probably yeah. they The first ones were just starting to open. How many plants were you guys growing? Oh, man, let's see. We had four lights. I think we were doing five-gallon pots back then, so mm, probably 50-ish. I don't remember exactly. 50 but, plants. Yeah. And right. we'd carry each one close to harvest to the bathroom and, like, flush it in the in the uh, bathtub. And so you guys are packing soil just into the apartment, just oh, yeah. trying to sneak it in. And I, I don't think there was even carbon filters out yet, so, like, we were just reeking that place up. Oh, like, I bet. The whole neighborhood. 50 plants, too. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was pretty fun. Uh, when I look back, it was like nerve wracking at the time, but somehow we got away with it. Damn. Never got busted. Damn. Luckily. Yeah, yeah. So you guys are growing it. Did you have somebody to sell it to or you were just, he was just slinging it as he's going around. I mean, selling it back then was, selling it back then was so easy. I mean, yeah. Probably not compared to what Nothing it is now. Nothing like today. I mean, we were getting probably $5,000 a pound back then too. Damn. Like, yeah, it was great. What is it now? You're lucky if you can get $1,000 a pound for indoor right now how crazy is that yeah just because it's legal now and there's so much of it so much so flooded yeah so you're you start out there when did you start thinking okay like this is what this is what i'm gonna start doing um yeah i don't even know it just kind of happened I actually got arrested i started coming up to humboldt in 99 and then got arrested in late 99 bringing two pounds down um because i was with my buddy he was driving he had out state plates and obviously we were going like five six miles over the speed limit on a downhill near ukiah so we got pulled over i went i went to jail i was like a young kid i think back then i was like 20 years old and so like when that happened i was like oh what the fuck am i doing with my life like oh my da da da, da. 
got all like self introspective on that, and then I was like, "Well, fuck it, I'm I'm sticking with the weed. I'm not I'm not gonna like not um, do it because I don't think it should be illegal anyway." So fought that, got my two fifteen, wound up getting the case dropped years later, and then um, yeah, just started you know hustling. You know, I'd come up to Humboldt. Um, I had older friends, so they were twenty five, so they'd rent a car for me for twenty four hours. I'd drive up to Humboldt. You know, friends up here would front me usually about two pounds or so at a time. Take those back to the bay, either sling them into Ace or Quarters or whatever there, or ship them to the East Coast. You know, I I was playing all avenues back then. Um, and, uh, yeah, that's how it got started. And now it's just all 100% legal. Don't have to mess with the where's that package going to the East Coast anymore and all that stuff. So it feels nice, but obviously it's a whole different income level and, and business yeah. side of it these days. And you don't have to worry about the police coming and knocking. Well, yeah, federally, nice. do they still fuck around with farms? Not, not as really. Much? Yeah, as long as you're as long as you're abiding by like the local and state um, regulations, you, you're pretty safe with the feds. I think right now it's like interstate. If you send stuff across state lines, that's when they're going to come get you. If they get how long were you in jail for? Uh, only a few days. You know, um, that would have been enough for me. I would have yeah. gone to jail and be like, you know what? I think I'm getting out. Yeah, it seems like any time I got arrested, it was like on a Friday. And so then you got to stay in jail over the weekend and then your arraignment. Because they have 48 hours to arraign you, but it's only counting on weekdays. So, yeah, about three days, I think, on that one. Three or four days. And, uh, yeah, I'd never been to Ukiah. All I knew was SF, straight shot to Arcade. I didn't know anything in between. So, I, you know, I get out of jail. I had like $3 to my pot in my name and just walk out of there like, where where am I doing? What am I? And, you know, this is before cell phones. I didn't have a cell phone in 99. Um Barely had an email. Uh, internet was just pop- getting started. So anyway, I walked down the street, and there was like a skate shop called Freedom Skate Shop. It had a Bob Marley flag. Went in there, met the guy, the owner. He was super cool. I was like, oh, let me smoke you out in the back. Smoked me out. And uh, and that we're, we're still friends to this day, actually. So he works in the cannabis industry now, which is pretty cool. But uh, that was fun. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. So were you primarily running back then? Or were you growing as well? Um, Both. 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 Yeah. Yeah. For sure. But not up here. Well, I moved up here in 99, late 99. So after I got arrested was in October. Um, within the next two months, I'd moved up to, up here. Yeah. Was that with the intention of growing up here because of the climate? Uh, Yeah. Well, back then, you know, I was getting started indoor. Like everybody, Arcada was popping. Like every other house was growing weed in it. Um, so I was lucky. I, I got my first place in McKinleyville. It was pretty remote. Um, up off Dallas Prairie and you know my landlord lived on the same property but she was elderly and just never never messed with us so I blew up every room in that in that place it was like a, a mobile home type thing that they had customized it was pretty nice but it wasn't that nice so I just I blew up both the bedrooms put lights in there and uh, just started going wow yeah just using all the space you could yeah yeah wow yeah it was fun it's a different world yeah and now do you do you do any indoor growing or it's primarily oh, yeah. outdoor? No, I do all indoor. All uh, atmosphere, so indoor, mixed light, light depth, and full sun. So when did Talking Trees Farm specifically start? The name the name was founded in uh, 2013 Yeah, by one of my employees, actually. Came yeah, up with it. Cool, yeah. Oh, nice. Yeah, there's a little story about it. Like, I got this property, and, you know, back then, you didn't want all your grows to be in one spot because it looked too big. So, like, you know, it's 120 acres property mostly unusable mostly it's like super steep uh, mountainous terrain but there's like four different patches of garden that we were doing um you know prior to legalization and then we had this one extra we called it extra credit it was just like wasn't the best sign but heck why not throw some plants out there too you know get a little extra but uh, around four o'clock in the afternoon like just the wind blows and the trees are just like like just real squeaky and just loud and uh so it turns out one day, you know, we never talked about it. it. Turns out one day, her and her boyfriend were working for me. She goes down to the grocery store to open a, a charge account, and they're like, well, "What do you want the name to be under the account?" And she's just like, oh, "How about Talking Trees?" And I was like, "That's awesome! It's a great name. You just named the brand, and uh, that's how it came to be." Just off the cuff like that. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's funny how things like that work out. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty cool. So how much, how much are you growing now? Um, you know. On a good season, how many plants do you have? Oh, how many plants? Tens of thousands. Oh, my Tens God. Tens of thousands. Because uh, we do, you know, multiple harvest. Um, 
smaller plant cycles, light depth and stuff. So probably on an average year, I would say around forty to 50,000 plants. That's so crazy. Yeah. And what does that pounds. translate to pa- a few thousand pounds? A few thousand pounds, yeah. And a season lasts. I don't know anything about growing weed. Well, there is no such thing as seasons anymore in, the, in our world right now. It's Because like you can control it. Kind of doing yeah. it year round. I mean, the only thing that's seasonal is, is mostly the full sun and light depth. Otherwise, mixed light, indoor, you're running 24-7 and have a nursery as well. And so that's always prepping for the outdoor in the mix, in the light depth. So it's really, uh, it's always going. It's never ending these days. Light depth, light deprivation? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, totally. Is there a difference between growing them in sunlight and growing them indoors with artificial light? Um, like, would you be able to tell the difference between a plant? Uh, oh, yeah, for sure. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. In yeah. terms of? Uh, mostly color and the way it looks. Um, you'll tend to, like, indoor tends to get the best look because um, it's really controlled, the spectrum. But the outdoor is more of a, you know, full light spectrum. And depending on where you're at, um, you can't have too much light and too much heat, which will make the bud a, a bit darker than as opposed to like the controlled environment of indoor. But even though outdoor might not look as good, I personally prefer outdoor smoking outdoor. I think it just has that more full sun spectrum embodiment of what the plant should be. Does it change the flavor at all? A little bit. I mean, every little nuance changes. It does it. So like me growing versus you growing in the same exact environment, it's going to be different. Like, there's so many little nuances to it. It's uh, You can almost never replicate one harvest to the next. I mean, maybe if you're the same grower, same room, same strain, you can get pretty consistent, but there's just so much variability. What is the biggest factor in it? Is it the light? Is it the soil quality? Mm, I think it's everything, but uh, personal touch probably, like how, how you feed your plants, how you take care of them. Are you paying attention to your temperature, humidities, your lighting? I mean, so many details, you know. When I walk into a grow room, because, you know, I have a a big crew that helps me do all the gardening, I just, like, my eyes just go all around the room. I'm looking at everything. I'm, like, inspecting the little details, not, like, you know, the, yeah, just very details, a lot of details. Every little thing counts. Every little thing counts. Because if one thing's off, it can affect the production and the yields and stuff. How long does it take for a plant when you plant it to start producing? Um, that's personal choice too. Um, oh, you can control that. Yeah, you can veg it, which keeps it from flowering just by keeping it on an 18-hour light cycle. Um, you can veg it to the tight of a house if you have enough soil um, medium for it to grow. But most people, you know, veg from anywhere, depending on what you're doing. So like indoor, you veg less. Outdoor, you're vegging a lot longer because of the cycle of the sun. But most people will probably veg between two to six weeks, depending on what they're doing. And then once you trigger that into flowering, which is controlling the light cycle to 12-12, usually most strains are about eight to nine weeks. Eight to nine weeks. Yeah. And vegging is just letting it grow without flowering? Yeah, vegging is just like getting the plant bigger and bigger. And what does that do? That just allows it to produce more when you do want it to flower. It should. In theory, right? (laughs) In theory. In concept, yeah. The bigger the plant, potentially the more bud sites you'll have to harvest off of it. So that's when you see those pictures of stalks like 10, 12 feet tall, just ginormous. They're vegging them to get them that size. Right. So that in that scenario, they probably planted them as already started and vegged indoor outside in mid-May. And then you got all of May to June and then June to July. And then uh, natural light cycle outdoor they start um, flowering towards the end of July, early August. So you got to, you know, you're looking at maybe eight to nine weeks of veg in those. That's why they get so big. Is that the standard cycle? Is you would start it indoors and then move it outside when you want it to flower? Yeah, or or start it indoors and move it outdoors once the light cycles change. Like come like mid May is like there's at least fourteen hours of sun of sunlight. Um, but some people, if you're growing from seed, the seed isn't as um, particular about how much light there is because you could start the seed outside in february or april or february or march even and weather conditions you know coinciding and you know like the weather we're having right now would be horrible for having little um, veg plants but you can seeds are usually more resilient so you could actually direct plant those outside and they won't be as affected by the light cycle and can just go 
but most people play it safe and start their plants indoor and then mid-May move them outdoor and watch them grow. It's it's crazy in that when you hear people talk about growing them, they talk about them as almost like they're pets, like a living pet, I've noticed, you know? Oh, yeah, like that little baby. Yeah, thing. you got to watch them grow. Oh, yeah, yeah. Is it is it complicated to – I know you're probably going to say, yeah, absolutely, but is it a harder – I would imagine it's hard for sure to grow weed, but is it as simple as you just kind of get some dirt and you can plant it like if you were doing a plant in your backyard? Yeah. I mean, especially out, outdoor, if you're in the right environment, it's it's not that hard, you know. A lot of people overdo it, um, overfeed, overwater, you know, plants. It's like a house plant, but you give it a little bit more attention and, and understand what, what amount of food it needs to get the most out of it. Um, but no, it's not too hard. What are you feeding it um, when you say feed? Yeah, there's lots of different styles, so... You know, you could buy bottled nutrients off the shelves at a store, which are mostly going to be mineral salt-based nutrients, and those are called synthetics. Um, you can feed it just natural compost that you produce at your um, on your own, or you can make compost teas. Um, there's a variety of, like, dry amendments out there that uh, brands make, and mostly they're going to be, like, you know, fish material, um, Back guanos, uh, you know, chicken manure, all all types of things that regular uh, crops would use. And how often are you feeding it? Is this like a daily thing or a weekly? Um, again, kind of just depends, but at least minimal once a week. But some people feed every time they water. Yeah, so you can kind of. There's so many different ways to go about it. Yeah, yeah it sounds yeah. like it. That's all kind of personal choice and stuff. Does that change how quickly the plant would grow if you're feeding it more than once a week, or that's kind of? Um, it can. I mean, the goal of that, all that feeding is to get bigger, chunkier, frostier nugs, flower buds. So, um, in theory, the more you're feeding, the better, bigger plants you're going to have. But you can overfeed too. And then, what happens if you overfeed it? It kind of stunts their development, and they start to ripen like um become mature faster than they're able to keep growing so like they kind of skip the adolescence phase in a sense um and just start um, finishing sooner and so you get smaller buds so it's almost counterproductive in the adolescence phase what what are the differences between the phases is that like yeah well what you're feeding you so you start off with nitrogen because nitrogen grows and, and greens up the plant and then you um can phosphorus is kind of like the main aspect of that uh, adolescence phase where it's like, you know, helps it bulge out. And if you over, over uh, nitrate and then go straight to potassium, which is like the NPK value, which is kind of like the, the main nutrient um, scale that is used, I guess. And then everything else is kind of considered micronutrients. Um, yeah. So the balance of when you give that NPK throughout the cycle, kind of develops like uh, child, you know, development is like you want more nitrogen, then you transition to more phosphorus so it can like really grow and expand and then transition to more um, potassium at the end to ripen up. And then, you know, can add sugars. There's a million products people could add into in like um, help develop it a little bit faster, maybe bring out more terpenes, maybe bring out more potency. Um, but most of those products are just trying to get your money. And I always find that like keeping it simple, but a good recipe is the way to succeed. Yeah, kind of move away from the gimmicks. Yeah. Well, it's easy to tell that you know your shit, man. You're here <laughs> listing off all this stuff, and I'm like, I don't know what any of that is. Yeah. I would imagine a lot of that has been trial and error over the years of just dialing, oh, yeah. honing in your craft. Totally. And uh, yeah, I mean, always paying attention. There's always new things uh, coming out to market, new products, new techniques. Um, so you just got to always keep learning, you know, how do, can you control the THC potency of a plant or is that pretty much just strain specific? That's usually like a genetic, um, thing, but you can have swings based on how well you take care of or don't take care of the plant. So say a, you have a strain that's known to produce, um, about 25% THC. If you don't feed it right, you could get as low as, you know, it could be a 10, 10 to 10 percentage swing down. You can't really maximize too much more up, but maybe a little bit. So um, usually the genetics of the strain kind of kind of dictate where it's going to land in terms of potency. 
and quality of care affects that. Exactly. That's fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have a specific strain that you like as your go-to? Yeah, it's hard because the market's always changing, and we just always are popping new seeds, looking for new phenos out of those seeds, and just always trying to like work with new strains. If I had to choose which one I like the most, I have a couple different ones. I really love Skittles just because of its flavors. It's so amazing. It's not the funnest to grow. It doesn't have the best yields, um, but it's just so tasty. And then right now we have this strain that we kind of pheno hunted. Um, it's called the Mac and Cheese, which is just an amazing plant. It grows super easy. It's chunky. gets a little bit of the purple in it. tests around 30%. It, like, checks all the marks of a good strain. And it tastes good. Not as good as the Skittles, but it's good. So, but with a name like Mac and Cheese, it would have to taste good. Yeah, yeah. So when you say you're hunting for a phenotype, are you guys manipulating that? You're kind of breeding... No, on your own or? well, we do a, a little breeding. We're trying to get more into it um, as the nursery get built gets built out. Um, it's kind of work in progress right now, but mostly, you know, we've done a few crosses on our own. But mostly, we buy seeds from other established breeders. And when you buy seeds, it's like buying, uh, you know, a family of children. They're all not going to pop out the same, even though they have the same parents. So when you get a, a, a seed pack that has ten seeds in it, you could have ten very different plant phenotypes and so what you do is you know you take a cutting of each one so you preserve it so you don't lose it and then you flower those out and you test them and then see what the similarities are which one really stands out to you and then you usually like you know cull and and kill off the other ones and then focus on like two or three of the best phenos of that and then kind of just replicate them through cloning so a cutting you'll just cut out a little piece of that seed and plant that uh well well first the, the the seed has to grow into a plant Oh, and then you're... And then you have to have at least one um, inner node for the plant to grow from. And so you could take a cutting, dip it, and you don't actually have to dip it in any hormone, but you can dip it even in willow. But you put it into a cube and keep it moist, and then roots will come out within like two weeks usually. And then that plant will start to grow. And, so, and then all the... If that's the most attractive one, that's the one you keep focusing on, and you kind of just... Yeah, some, might, some might be duds or not too good. Like uh, breeding these days is like kind of just a shot in the dark people aren't really stabilizing stuff which is like going to f2 f3 like back crossing the two back to each other you're going to start getting more stability stability Um, in terms of um like there'll be more uniform characteristics like that you know you're you're just kind of like building up the characteristic between that male and that female and it becomes more stable whereas right now people are usually just doing a cross they're getting the seed out of it and they're putting those seeds out. And so they might not be stable. They, you might have some that's hermaphrodite. You might have just super wildly different phenotypes. And not that there's anything wrong or bad about it. It's just like um, it's become less consistent. Whereas back in the day when people put out, you know, Skunk One or Cindy 99, it was like pretty ju- true to that because they had been working on that genetic line and building that stability into the uh, line of the seeds over like years and that's the thing with breeding is like it's a long process you can't like i'm gonna make some seeds and like have seeds by the end of that year that are good you know you have to then test those out kind of see the consistency it's it's a long process but it's a lot of fun breeding is the thing i think that fascinates me the most just because it seems so so technical and yet there's like a creative flair in it yeah right i mean it's not really that technical it's it's nature you know males produce balls and they want to they want to impregnate females um i think where it gets technical is on the on like what you're trying to achieve out of that breeding and so then the technical part comes to once you have you know um you know impregnated the female with the pollen to see what pop those seeds and then kind of see the progeny and start to pick out the the best you know phenos or children of that and then decide what you want to do with it either back cross it or you know stabilize it more or go in a different direction and cross it with other things that's where it, like the creativity and maybe more technical side of it comes was once you like have that seed that you've produced and what do you do with it next and so back crossing would help to stabilize it how many times would you have to do that before you'd be pretty certain that you could plant these seeds and get like a replicatable thing coming out of it yeah it kind of depends on the genetics i mean if you do like three times you're going to definitely be a lot closer 
Um, yeah, about three, but some people go as far as seven, eight. Just to really try to stabilize it. Yeah. And they're trying to like, you know, really after certain traits, whether it be, you know, the height that it grows, the girth of the buds, the flavor or the terpenes or the potency, you know, there's all those factors. Like it's up to the breeder what their what their goals are and what they're doing in the work. Is there any standard if you were going to sell seeds, you'd have to back cross it twice? No, you could just do it once and put them out there and say, hey, this is what this is. Yeah, that's what it's like. That's the seed market these days is, is people are just doing crosses and throwing them out. Is that just because there's so many people trying to create new strains that they're just yeah. throwing everything at the wall to see what they pollen chuckers. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And there's a lot of money in seeds, so. And then also there's a lot of variety that you get out of that, just that single one cross. Like you might get 10 totally different things that you can pick one and then start to stabilize that with. So, I mean, whether it's a good or bad thing, a lot of people do hate on the fact that people are just doing one, one F1 crosses and putting them out there. But, you know, to each their own. Is it hard getting them to breed? What does that look like? Um, no, I mean, as long as you got to fit a male and – you know, you balance it out. Usually the males will start to pop, you know, produce their balls and, and reduce the pollen sacs earlier than the female. So there's a little balance on like um, getting the timing right. And because you're usually keeping them separated. And so you want to in- introduce the male to the female like about three weeks into the, the female being flowering. And breeding has to be done like in a flowering um, environment. You can't, you won't. You can't impregnate a female plant if it's not flowering. So right around the same time you're harvesting, you're also trying to breed. No, you would introduce the pollen like about second to third week. Okay. And so then that gives the seeds that five, six weeks to to to, to develop. And you just have to have them in close enough proximity for that pollen to spread. Yeah, I mean it. It spreads like pollen in the air. It, it wants to go. Mm-hmm. It's kind of any yeah. So that's that's more of a concern of like controlling it and making sure that you don't um release it on the plants that you don't want pollen on yeah cross pollinate other plants yeah so you gotta be careful with that especially if you have multiple males so a lot of people will focus on working on one male at a time and that way they know what they're working with if you got like three or four males and they're in the same room especially and you put them in and you know who knows what who knows what guy got to what girl you know so you got to be really um, just thoroughly organized when you're dealing with breeding to make sure you know what you're doing. Otherwise, it's like, who knows what... Who yeah, knows you could have anything. Who knows what's in that bag? I didn't know that you could have a hermaphrodite plant. Yep. Is that pretty rare? No. I mean, it's all about the stability of the genetics, but it's more and more common since people are just like pollen chucking and, and doing these like one-time crosses. Uh, but basically, a female plant, once it starts flowering... Usually it'll start, it looks kind of like bananas. It'll like throw out like two bananas and you kind of see that as an indication that it's 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 hermaphroditing. And in some cases it won't fully produce male parts, but you, you can just pluck those little bananas out. But in some cases it can be aggressive and, and develop into male pollen sacs. And then, then you're just going to, and if you breed with that, you're just going to continue that inconsistency. So once you see that, and that's why it's important to test seeds before you put them out to market. Because if you put out, seeds that are just going to hermaphrodite you're going to get a really bad reputation so there has to be some testing there to make sure that um, you're putting out somewhat stable genetics um, but then with feminizing that's the goal that people do they introduce uh, you know chemical colloidal silver mostly and that you put on a female that's flowering or fla- yeah female that's flowering you introduce this um, you know basically it's silver and it, it triggers the plant to think that it should produce male parts. And so it'll produce pollen. And then you can put that pollen on that same, not same plant, but same genetic, same strain. And then that'll feminize the seed. So you'll guarantee that it's a, 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 femi- a, a female seed. If it's a hermaphrodite plant. Yeah, but that's more of like a plant hermaphrodite. Like you wouldn't want that plant to be hermaphroditing on its own. Mm-hmm. You're introducing a chemical to create that hermaphrodite and why would you want to do that what's the purpose behind that because when you feminize a seed you know like you can just pop them all and they're going to be more uniform and know that they're female Mm. so you don't have to like go pull out the males and uh you're gonna have like pretty pretty consistent um progeny basically can a hermaphrodite 
Hermaphrodite. Is that a word? Um, hermaphrodite. It's yeah. going to be a word now. Yeah, yeah, right. Can a hermaphrodite plant self-pollinate? Mm, I'm not 100% sure. In most cases, it would probably be too far along mm-hmm. for it to develop the seed. So you might get like little, little like albino seeds that are are no good. Like they'll just you know, you do a pinch test, they'll just crumble in your, your finger, and that seed probably wouldn't pop. So I'm not 100 percent on that answer. Good question, but I don't think so. I don't think it's much of an issue. And you can tell if a plant is going to tend towards being a hermaphrodite by testing the seed. Well, not by testing the seed. I mean, maybe there is some type of test like that, but mostly just by flowering the plant out. And, and waiting to see. Waiting to see by like week four, five, six, if it's if it's shooting out those bananas or producing male um, parts. And that just comes from unstable genetics. Yeah, totally. Yeah. That's yeah. the problem with just going buck wild breeding everything, right? <laughs> yeah. You don't know what you're going to get. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Is that, I mean, could you breed it to the point where those are the only plants that would come out of those seeds then would all be hermaphrodites if it's just if it's genetics just got so switched mm. up yeah but i don't think anybody would want that so yeah it'd be smart to just kill that off and, and try, try to remove new. that from the yeah the ecosystem yeah or cross it back to to the male or the female to try and stabilize it more and then see if those seeds produce a more stable plant what what is the focus for everybody nowadays higher thc content is that unfortunately, the seeds? unfortunately I mean, in everything in cannabis right now, it's uh, unfortunately what is driving the market is potency, even though, I mean, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't add up. And you can you can get higher off plants with lower potency than some more potent. It's so it doesn't equate to like how high you're going to get because there's the terpene, there's an the entourage effect of all the cannabinoids and things that we don't even know about the cannabis plant just yet. So it, it kind of sucks that the whole market is driven by potency. But... That's, that's the world we're living in, the game we have to play. Is that just because the consumer equates potency to how high you're going to get it? Yeah. Like alcohol Misin- content? Yeah, misinformation. Yeah, totally. Yeah. What would you want to focus on? If you could control the market and say, hey, let's swing towards this, what would I'm, you direct it at? I would say flavor. and uh, That's a good one. Yeah, which is terpenes. Yeah. 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 Flavor and, of course, of course, effect. But that effect might not mean it has to be the most potent. Yeah. So, variety of different things. Yeah, that's the that's the big thing is you see, oh, it's got like it's like ninety percent THC or eighty percent THC, and that's those are the go tos, right? Yeah, yeah. Totally. Was it like that back in the nineties? Not at all. Yeah, not at all. Back then, you could grow anything, even up until about two thousand ten to even later, almost you could grow anything and it would sell. Probably around two thousand ten, I'd say, it got a little flooded up here, and back then it was. You know, I'll go into the East Coast from here mostly. So it was OGs and Sours. It was like those fuel strains. Yeah. And then once it hit the legal market, it just went THC crazy. Yep. Yep. Once the testing came into play, THC crazy. There was like the cookies phase after the uh, the fuel phase. And then there was the gelato phase. And this last year we've been in the purple phase again. Everybody's wanting purple. And I don't know where it's going next. But... Are those strains like sour diesel or Girl Scout cookies, are those more stable strains just because I would imagine so many people have been producing those? Yeah, for the most part. I mean, depending on where you got them from, like there's so many different of those strains out on the market now because people got their hands on them and crossed them back or this and that. I would say neither of them are like bulletproof stable. I'd say the OG I've never really seen too many issues with, Um, susceptible to PM and other little issues, but... I'd say out of those three, maybe sour diesel overall, I'd say it has been the least stable from what I've seen. Oh, really? Yeah. It would like produce little bananas every once in a while. It wouldn't like fully hermaphrodite. But again, it just depends on where you got it from because there were so many different uh, varieties of those strains out on the market. Whereas Girl Scout Cookies was put out as a clone from like the Cookies fam. So it was pretty stable if you got the good cut. It's weird hearing that the seeds aren't that stable and there's like not a lot of testing around that considering how much testing has to be done on product that you actually push to the market right like thc or packaged flour especially the testing that goes into that you think that they'd be watching everything and say hey no you have to have this stable or that yeah well the seed's not really a plant yet so it'd be a lot harder to 
um, figure out where it's going to go. Determine those parameters to yeah to have that in place. And we don't need any more um, regulation. We need it lightened up, if anything. Has it been hard up here, especially with all jumping through all the hoops for that? Super hard. Yeah. Yeah. So much. So much. So much work. And tolerance, and money spent, and bureaucracy, and taxes—it's just—it's crushing us. Do you think that that's intentional? Um, I would like to think not, but on some level, it is. Especially by the lobby lobbyists that had like multi-hundred million-dollar funds that like are just going to try and squash out the little men, the independent farmers up here, and so they can take you know over the market, just the the biggest guys in the in the game. Because like uh, Prop 64, the spirit of it was to have a one-acre cap for at least till I think 2025, if I was correct. And right in like the 11th hour of passing it, they dropped that and made it a loophole so that people could stack smaller licenses to any extent. And so now you have, you know, 100-acre farms in SoCal that are just overproducing, can't even sell the product but they got hundreds of millions of dollars and they can wait it out while everybody else suffers and prices have dropped by 300% in the last year. And that screws you guys over where you're a smaller farm. Definitely screws. I mean, screws everybody over, screws themselves over, but they're maybe in a position to stomach it and hope that everybody else fails and that they can still survive, which good luck. They all have investors. Investors don't like losing money for too long. Yeah. Whereas we're you know up here, more small scale, been doing it. It's a lifestyle. It's a lifestyle. A lot of us have, you know, properties paid off, even though I've had to refinance it to keep going. But it's more of a lifestyle, and like we're just committed for life. And that's down there. Like we're trying to make big money, and it's like, well, good luck. There is no money in cannabis right now. Is are they the problem? Is that why there's so much saturation in the market? Is because these massive, you know, farms that are backed by outside investors are just yeah overproducing. Yep. Is that unique to California or that is that in all the legal states right now? Um, no, unique to California. I mean, I think Oklahoma is like wild east, I guess you could say. It's pretty wild out there. I think they let pretty much anything go. Um, but California is proliferating, letting everything go, but then also taxing us like crazy. So the taxes are just so out of whack that it's like it makes no sense because it's a flat tax based on what you produced, not what you sold it for, not a percentage of sales. So right now we're paying $156 per pound produced when the selling rate for pounds right now is from like $400 to $900. And so that doesn't pencil out, especially in the summertime around harvest, October, November. I mean, that was four to $600 a pound. Take $156 off of that. Then you had to trim it. Then you had to grow it, you know, store it, permitting. Like there's no money. Like, you know, we're, we're there's no way to survive in the current um standards of how the industry's running so something has to change why are they taxing it at a flat rate like that because they're fucking they don't know they don't know they're just and it was through a voter initiative prop 64 so it's not so easy to change like you know i was like well can't the governor just come in and like um do an executive order or something to change it and i guess it doesn't work like that so did they do did they do anything during covid any relief for you guys I thought I read something like that. No, they allowed us to operate, which is good enough, but we don't we couldn't access the PPP loans, we couldn't access any funding. We have no access to funding in general anyway. So we're just like overtaxed, overregulated, no access to capital, and how else can you stab me in the back? <laughs> Are you guys still that. locked out of banks too? Uh thankfully that's opened up, especially locally. We, our credit union up here is is uh, embracing it. And has been really, really good to work with. We were one of the first people to open with Coast Central Credit Union, and uh, they have a whole division re- um, for for uh, cannabis banking. And they make it. I mean, they make it hard. It's it's great that we have it, but like we have to submit so much paperwork with every deposit. You know, they want our manifest. They have a special program now to kind of track all our cash flow movements, whether it's cash or in the bank. So it's available, but it's like banking 4.0 like so much detail like when we tried to open the account the list of stuff they wanted we're like uh we're gonna have to wheel in like four file cabinets for all this file like you're asking for way too much because we have to have so much documentation for every transaction do you think that it going 
federally legal would help that or make it worse because we just get shit on even more uh, i think federal legalization would be really good for the first three years or so because nobody would be able to scale up to meet demand of the, the whole nation that fast and then i think we'd run into where we're at now four years into legalization in california that those mega farms would scale up as fast as they could to meet demand soon scaling up could over uh, saturate demand but I think if legalization was to happen anytime soon on a federal level, it'd be great for like three years for everybody. Do you see that on the horizon? I don't even, I don't even try to think about it anymore. It's so I mean, the political world is so. It's kind of crazy so, that it. I mean, it hasn't happened yet. Yeah, it is. It is, and it's like, why would the Democrats not do it? And it's like, it, all it's going to do is boost the economy by so much that I, it doesn't even make sense why it's not hasn't been done yet. And the argument that it's bad or or any line of thinking down that road, it kind of goes out the window when you say, oh, yeah, but we – alcohol. Alcohol is legal. Yeah. And we're just prescribing the shit out of these prescription pills, and that's that's okay too. But, yeah. nah, this – we're going to – we're going to No one's ever this. died from cannabis, but – or, of course, you know, some news outlets will kind of try and claim that, you know, that's happened. But no one's ever died from cannabis. You can have a really bad high. If you eat too much edibles, even psychedelic, but you're not going to die. You're not going to die. Yeah, it might be a rough few hours, but it you're going to be. It could be, it could be a rough 24 <laughs> hours. I've, I've had a rough one back when I was younger. And just, you know, now everything's so dosed. Like, you know exactly what you're doing. Back in the day, I'd just be a homie or even myself making a batch of cookies, just heating it up, piling it in. I had no po- how, idea how potent they were. Yeah, and you're just eating Sometimes them. Sometimes they were. We're going to go for a ride. Oh, yeah, super potent. Yeah, so. Do you miss those days in regards to growing and and selling just because there wasn't all this, all these hoops you had to jump through? Yeah. In a lot of ways, it was easier, but it was way more risky. So, you know, it was easier to make money, but there was all that, always that risk involved in the back of your head that you had to always be like looking both ways, you know, just always super cautious about what you're doing. Definitely didn't want to get busted doing anything out of state. Um, going across the lines because that comes with heftier jail times. So, I mean, it was like, I mean, obviously I got a lot of gray hair and I'm not that old, so <laughs> it's like stressful, but uh, it was more fun. I mean, kind of almost, I mean, I still love it, but a lot of the fun's been taken out of it, dealing with all the bureaucracy. And just because that risk isn't there anymore. I'm sure. That yeah, I don't, I don't really miss the risk. I just miss the reward side of that. The other, you know making a living Mm -hmm. it's hard to make a living in cannabis these days yeah i would imagine it's it's stressful having to deal with all that yeah Yeah. i mean yeah you trade not getting arrested but then you're also now you're looking at the the paperwork saying okay are we gonna we're gonna make it through this month is that gonna right is this gonna pencil out yeah because we get charged a premium on our insurance we get charged the taxes like crazy like we're just over um taxed in every regard from insurance to taxes to everything. Are a lot of farmers speaking out against that? or Oh, yeah, definitely. It's just getting silenced. Especially locally. I mean, locally, our, our local farmers and the HCGA, Humboldt County Growers Alliance, was super vocal and got our local tax reduced by 85%. Oh, that's a significant amount. Yeah. Unfortunately, the local tax is a drop in the bucket compared to the state tax because um, the state tax, you know, um, is on every pound produced Whereas the local tax is based on your square footage and um, a one-time tax a year based on square footage. But having that reduced by 85% is super helpful. It's a good start in the right direction. And uh, hopefully that'll just trickle up to the state and have the state change. That's one of the things you've been hearing a lot, especially recently, is that the farmers are struggling because of the tax rate. Yeah. That seems to be the going narrative. Everybody's struggling. I mean, retailers are struggling because the 280E, which is the federal tax code, which was, you know, put in place because of the mafia. They're like, we don't condone your business, but we still want your money. And so we can't write off ordinary business expenses. We can't write off our payroll. We can't write off our marketing. So we're paying taxes on all that when we file our our, our income tax um, at the end of the year. And so, like, we're just taxed like crazy on all levels. 280E for the mafia, what is that? It was a. Uh, That's why you can't write stuff off. It's yeah, it's a, you it's a code area. in the tax, you know, in tax code. It's whatever you call it, a part of the tax code that was originally 
like drafted during like the old school mafia days because they wanted their money, but they didn't, um, you know, the businesses weren't legal. So they're like, you can't write, they created this code where they can't write off their business expenses, but you still have to pay taxes. Yeah. But it comes from like old school mafia days. And so now we're subject to that same tax rule, even though we're legal in more states than not in the country. So the feds need to catch up. Yeah, they're dragging their feet. Yeah. Yeah. I thought when Biden got in, he would have done it. But now that it's hopeful. been this long, I don't I don't know anymore. Yeah, that's why, that's why I've kind of give up hope on like, well, we'll just see. We'll just keep trotting on. Yeah. yeah, it's weird. It's weird when you get into that bureaucratic side of what is okay for people to do and what is not okay. Yeah, totally. We have to stop people from doing what they want in regards to certain things. But oh, you can do you can do this. You could ride without a motorcycle helmet in some states, but right. Yeah, weed. We're gonna <laughs> we're gonna block that one off. Yeah, across the country. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they definitely need to do something about the tax rate. Then I'm yeah. glad the county stepped up. Was that after I? I talked to a few people about that. They hit you guys with some tax rate that wasn't okay. And was that part of that? Was that why that got reduced? Yep. Yeah. yeah. I think it was just a couple months ago that that happened. Or do you know what that went? You said 85%. Do you know what it was to what it went to? Yeah. There were three tiers. Indoor was $3 a square foot. Um, mixed lights, $2 a square foot. And outdoor is $1 a square foot. So now outdoor would be $0.15 cents a square foot. And that's paid at the end of the year. They've changed it. So there's two, they break it up into two payments. And I believe they've changed it so that the first one's due in September now, which is like if you're doing light dip, you at least might have had a harvest in by then. Because um, again, they don't care if you harvest it or if you lose the crop or not. If you plant it, they're taxing you. So it's even though it's better, it still doesn't allow for all the disasters and catastrophes that could happen growing especially on outdoor i mean you know there's so many bugs there's you know russet mites you know powdery mildew fires up here fires the rain comes earlier and stuff goes gets molded with botrytis so i mean the potential to lose a crop is huge and so why are we taxed before we harvest it and you would still have to pay if you lost your whole crop you'd still have to pay if you planted it you have to pay it damn yeah that's crazy. Yeah. It seems weird that they wouldn't just model you guys after other ag standards, you would, like for corn or for you wheat. You would think. <laughs> yeah. Do you guys grow any hemp or it's all no, straight cannabis? No, all straight cannabis. I mean, we'll, we'll do like a CBD leaning strain, but it would still be considered cannabis. Does, is there any distinction if you're growing purely for CBD? You get it put into a different tax rate or anything like that? Uh, they're, well, they're trying to change that. They're trying to right now. Yes, you could grow um, hemp and not have to deal with taxes at all. But they're trying to change that in California right now to make it just like cannabis. So increase the tax, make it harder to do. But right now, I think locally they were trying to do a ban on hemp. I don't think there's a ban on it, or there might be in Humboldt County, but Arcata you can. Um, so I'm not sure exactly where that is, but to be considered hemp or CBD, um, to be able to sell across state lines because it's federally legal now, hemp is, it has to be less than 0.3% THC. And they might, they might be banned here in Humboldt, hemp? I might, I might that be. That seems crazy. It might be because they were trying to like, because you really can't tell the difference between hemp and cannabis. I mean, they are the same plant. It's just uh, genetic differences. So... A lot of people, especially in Oregon, say they're growing hemp, mm. but they're growing THC. And so, I mean, I kind of get where, especially being a cannabis grower, like we're at a huge disadvantage and people are like manipulating that. So there, there should be something done, but I'm, I'm never in, in favor of more taxation of anything. I just think it's ridiculous. And that seems like that would discourage people from going into hemp, mm-hmm. which is not good. No, but there's a, there's a lot of hemp being grown in the country now, so... Is it really? Yeah, all, every state can be growing hemp now. So there's a lot. I'd say there's probably an oversupply of hemp in the market. Yeah. Well, we just need to utilize that better. Yeah, totally. I mean, hemp is, yeah. we could be making all our our plastic out of hemp. Right, we're not doing anything with the fibers. Yeah. Yeah, yeah we're not. I mean, when you, when you, we could be making clothes out of hemp. Like, that is such a, 
Yeah. I make so, clothes out I of mean, hemp, but... Uh, you make your own clothes out of hemp? Yeah. I've been, I started a, clothing, a Satori Movement clothing company in 1998, too. So I've been making hemp clothing for 24 years. Um, but oh, so I don't even... Yeah. All, the hemp, all, the hemp, already... all this hemp comes from China. Oh, does it? Yeah, because there's no, there's no facilities processing hemp for fiber and fabric in the States. It's all being grown for flour. Oh, that's and crazy. so we're just wasting all the stocks. And so all the hemp's here, but you have to go overseas to, to, to get, do anything to with to it. To get fiber. And wow. Fiber, yeah. yeah. Hopefully someone will step up. But that's huge infrastructure to process into fiber and, and fabric production. So are you turning the fiber into the shirts here? Your that's no. overseas as well? Yeah, it's overseas. Yeah. Damn. Yeah. 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 Hopefully soon. Fingers crossed. Yeah. That's funny. I didn't know. I didn't know that. But if I was going to grow hemp, I would go somewhere in this country where it's a lot cheaper to to have real estate, like you know the South or you know Oklahoma. Even California real estate is so expensive; it doesn't pencil out to grow hemp here. If you can grow it in a much cheaper area, is it is hemp the same way that you would like? This would be a good area because of the soil and stuff, or hemp's a much easier plant to grow. It depends on what you're growing it for. If you're growing it for flower, yeah, do you want the same type of characteristics environmental for, as you're going for cannabis flower um if you're only growing it to extract it for oil and stuff which is what m- i'd say actually most of it is going for um not so much you know you're not looking for a pretty plant you're just row cropping it and harvesting it and just for the utility purpose parsing, par- yeah parsing it into oil but there's a degree i you know i don't know the percentage i'm going to guess 20 percent of hemp is being grown for flour for people to put in a jar or make pre-rolls out of it for states that are still illegal it's it's pretty hot hot uh, ticket items is there a pretty big black market still in those states for just cannabis i mean there's always going to be the traditional market um but it's shrinking i believe i think it's shrinking because People do like convenience of knowing that they can just go somewhere at their own accord and, and get a product that's going to be consistent versus, you know, your guy that shows up, you never know if he's got you the right stuff or, you know, there's no um, accountability other than street cred level. Yeah, what are you going to do? Yeah. Go to the cops? Hey, this guy ripped me off. Yeah. yeah. So I, I think the traditional market is shrinking um it's not much more profitable to be the prices are always mirror each other minus maybe the taxes so it's not really i don't even mess with it anymore it's not, it's not even worth the risk of all the empire i've built to try and make a hundred dollars more a pound it's not even worth it is that the stance a lot of farmers take now is it's just not even worth the hassle um, trying to delve into that i don't know i mean most farmers aren't as vertically integrated and have the the infrastructure and enterprise that i have so maybe they're more willing to take those risks. I imagine a lot of them probably are. But for me, it's like vertical company. I have retail brands. I have You've got so much investment. 140 in employees. And I don't want to jeopardize or put anything at risk by like an employee finding out I did that. or It's just not even worth me thinking about it. It's, it's more work for me to try and divert product out of the metric and, and regulated market then the reward would be worth at this point. You know, first it was like one foot in, one foot out when they were getting the regulations dialed in and implemented. So everybody was doing the half and half or, you know, shuffling whatever way they could. But now it's gotten pretty much more regulated or just more time's gone on and it's more consistent, the metrics that they expect to see. So at this point, it's just, yeah. It's just not worth that. It's all in. Yeah. yeah. Are, you, are you guys selling throughout the whole state? Yeah, we sell to yeah all over the state as far as Mexicali at the Mexican border, to um, Barstow on the Arizona side, Lake Tahoe, Weed, California. Like we cover all miles of the state. I got five vans that are driving around the state. I have one van that's a year and a half old and has one hundred seventy-four thousand miles on it. Damn! So you guys are out there. You guys are moving. We're out there. We're in like my brands: Talking Trees, Space Jam. Loud Trees and Have Hash. Uh, collectively, we're in about 300 stores, and there's only about 900 in the whole state. Oh, you do Space Gem too? Yeah, I'm partner with Wendy. Oh, no shit. Yeah, 
great product. Yeah, it is. I mean, yeah, the best gummy in oh, yeah. the planet. I mean, oh, yeah, they're solid. No touching it. Yeah. Oh, wow. How funny is that? Yeah, so I didn't know Talking that. Trees produces all the cannabis material for Space Jam. And um, that's my partner, Wendy's, um, you know, little baby. That's her project. She started that in 2013. And, oh, that's cool. Yeah, it's been a great partnership. Do you do you supply a lot locally, like flour to companies that I know there's? Well, we only supply my own brand, but then we sell this, the Talking Trees brands into almost every dispensary in the in the state. I okay. mean, sorry, in the in the county. Like every single dispensary in this county either carries Space Gym and or Talking Trees. So we have really good local market saturation. I don't really sell bulk flour to other brands because I'm really just focused on trying to build our brands mm-hmm. and just kind of scale up production as the brands gain more traction. Yeah, because I would imagine you sell it and then they're just going to rebrand it. And... Yeah, and on the re- flip side of that, back in 2020, the bulk market prices were great. People were like $1,500 a pound, like awesome. So going into last season, 21, I was like, okay, I'm going to grow more of less strains get some quick cash flow, you know, do 40, 50% bulk and then package 40, 50% for, to build the brand. And then the market crashed like 300%. So pounds are going for like three to 500 a pound. And I'm like, put the brakes on that. Like, no way I'm not selling bulk anymore. Like I just got to store it well and wait this out and package it all. So kind of got kicked in the butt by trying to go into that 50, 50 bulk versus packaged. And now it's like, there's no other way. You just go straight to consumer market. We just have to go packaged, yeah, CPG. Do you guys do any concentrates or anything like that? Yeah, so with uh, Talking Trees, we do bubble hash, just good old-fashioned dry trim bubble hash. It's a really good seller for us, um, good price point. And then with the the half hash brand, it's uh, kind of teamed up with a really good extractor, and it's kind of a licensing agreement. So um, that's all super high-end live rosin. So that's made from fresh frozen flower material that's specifically grown for to be extracted. And um, so, yeah, we do, we do a little both. We do the, the you know, mid-range price point extract, and then we do the high-end, you know, rosin extract. All solventless. I don't do anything with – I never got into CO2. I never got into butane. I've just always been a naturalist and just like, eh, not my thing. Which is good because that was booming for a year or two and then like fell flat on its face. The oil market is horrible. There's so much. Yeah, now it's all natural. Nobody wants anything added into their. It's moving that direction, but there's still a lot of distillate. Is it just cheaper to go that way with like CO2 or use some Um, concentrate for it? Well, the the entry level is way more expensive compared to like what we use. We use like basically you know, not using brand new garbage cans, ice and water and, and, and silk screens. So like it's super cheap to get into making like bubble hash versus the C1, D1 containers and all this equipment. You're spending a ton of money, but there's efficiency to it. And so over time it could be more efficient and more profitable, but that's just not how it worked out in California and for extractors because there's so many of them. And the price of those extracts have just plummeted. And so it's hard to get that a return on initial investment, I'd say. But I'm not I'm not an expert in that field, so I, I don't really know. I've just always stayed away from solvents. Is flour, is that the best seller? Just straight flour food? Flour is definitely, well, for us, pre-rolls are probably sell better than the flour. Flour is the most competition, you know, in the market. Flour is, there's hundreds of flour brands out there. Um, and same with gummy brands, there's, hundreds of gummy brands but so it's you got to stand out it's like a product like space gem just the ingredients made with ice water hash it, it stands out above and the all branding. Yeah, I mean, the branding perfect stands out above all other gummy brands and most people's opinion whereas flour is kind of flour you know once you open the jar or open the bag like the flour's got to be good and a lot of that's still branding where people um buy a brand they like and and the product can most often be pretty garbage but they like the brand so we try to focus on both high quality and build a brand that people like or would you in your opinion would you say a lot of brands kind of skimp on the quality when they're producing flour yes for sure and Just a lot of brands on quali- or, uh, a lot of brands are quantity. buying flour from cultivators so they're not they don't have that chain of, they don't else. have that chain of custody the whole way through like we do so there's going to be 
huge inconsistencies between like how they their product lines, I believe. Um, but from what I've seen, you know, I'm not going to say any names, but like the biggest brands out there, I wouldn't buy their product. I I just bought it and checked it out, and yeah, I just not up to it's par. all hype, not up to par. Yeah. Damn. Yeah. Yeah. Not surprising. Yeah. Well, Craig, uh, thanks for doing this, man. I had a great time yeah. talking with you. Yeah, was I, awesome. uh, yeah, I'm I'm excited to see where this market goes. I think Fed needs to step up for sure, but yeah, it sounds like the the state taxes are the the first big hoop to get through. Yeah, totally. Big time. Hoping for July or sometime at the end of this year they change that. Fingers crossed. Yeah. Uh, do you want to plug where people can find you again? Just so everybody knows yeah, what totally. your brand is, where to go to get it. Yeah. Well, if you're local to Humboldt, the best place to go to get my brand is at Satori Wellness in McKinleyville because that's my retail store. So it has the best selection of talking trees, loud trees, Space Jam, and have hash. Um, otherwise, we have um, dealer locators on our websites, and uh, we have our distribution company. It's called HighGradeDistribution.com. Um, all those brands are on Instagram. Most of them are on Facebook. Usually you have to type in the whole name, though, because we're shadow banned on, on social media, too. So just funny how that just happens. the challenges never end, but yeah. So it's not like our biggest marketing avenue, but there's still a presence. You can find us. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Well, thanks, Craig. I, awesome. I had a great time, man. Yeah, man. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Okay.